0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com.
1: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to move our discussion into vascular anesthesia. Specifically, we want to work through some of the main vascular cases that we'll see and how we're going to take care of these patients and go about just treating the hemodynamic changes that occur at different stages in vascular procedures. Before we get started into the actual cases themselves, let's just take a moment here to discuss some of the causes of disease processes that can occur that would warrant patients to have these procedures done.
0: What we really want to start thinking about here is what does the pathophysiology look like here? And so often you'll hear people describe patients as vasculopaths. So what does that look like? We need to start thinking about this in terms of a global disease. So although in a procedure, maybe you're just working on the carotid or you're just working on the aorta, you need to understand that whatever is causing the disease there is not just isolated to that portion of the body, but is going to be A global picture and so often you'll see this picture where you have a lot of plaques you have a lot of inflammatory modulators that are floating around you'll have basically non-compliant vasculature and so you might have difficulty if you're giving medications where you're trying to increase or decrease blood pressure you might see these large swings instead of just normal compliance which you would normally see in a healthy patient Many of these patients are going to be on different medications. You often think of statins. That's a very common one. It's also one that we would start these patients on prior to surgery if they're not already on one. These statins are going to be helpful for really a couple different reasons. They're going to stabilize these plaques. They're going to decrease the vascular inflammation, and they're basically going to protect the patient from having some more adverse effects from these different plaques and sclerosis. Another thing that you'll typically see in patients' med list is beta blockers. This is very common with people with CAD, as you know. This is often hand-in-hand with these vascular pathologies. And so that's another one that you may see in the medication list already. If not, this is one that we would like to start prior to these procedures just because of its beneficial effects with your myocardial oxygen and also some stabilization there with your heart rate and blood pressure. I think the big thing that you need to think about when you're thinking about people with vascular disease is that you have to keep in mind, again, that it is a global disease. And so many of the things that we're going to talk about today are trying to navigate the different steps of a procedure where maybe you'll have increased blood pressure, decreased blood pressure. And again, you just have to keep in mind that we don't have a very compliant system where we're able to just manipulate these things really quickly. And so you can often have issues with your respiratory system, with your renal system, even your spinal cord, and definitely there in your cardiac system as well. And so these are all things that as we go through these steps today, you need to just be thinking about what is this hypertension or hypotension doing to these different systems And how can we manage that as we walk through these cases?
1: Perfect. So that kind of brings our discussion now to specifically different kinds of cases. And we really wanted to spend some time now going through a carotid, which is basically the idea here that there's a big atherosclerotic occlusive disease that's happening in the carotid, which is limiting or occluding blood flow to get up into the brain. So you can see how this is going to be a disease process that if it continues to progress, you're ultimately going to be cutting off one of the main carotid arteries, one on each side here. If, if there's a disease in both, obviously that's even worse, but um, if the disease is progressing in one of these carotid arteries, it's going to prevent that blood flow to go up to the brain on that one side. Now it's important to note here what the vascular system looks like. So you're going to have your carotids, your left and your right, coming up on either side of the neck. And then they're going to converge here on the circle of Willis in the brain, which is basically allowing blood to come from either side, mix around in that circle of Willis and supply the same tissue with blood. Meaning if I have the left carotid artery not perfusing and not bringing blood through, the right carotid artery is still able to supply blood to all of that tissue It's not like the left side only does partial tissue and the right side only does partial tissue. So keep that in mind here that if one side is not perfusing, the other side can theoretically perfuse all the tissue in the brain. As we move through how we're going to manage patients during these cases, just keep that in mind. So first off, when we're doing these cases, there's a couple different ways we can do it. You can do a regional anesthesia plan or a general. The advantage of regional is that the patient's going to be more awake. And we can more accurately look at if we're perfusing the brain, because if we're not perfusing the brain, the patient's going to become a slurred of speech. They're going to become not as conscious and they're, they're, you're going to be having those signs that tell you, okay, this patient isn't getting enough oxygen for the brain. If we're under general anesthesia and the patient's asleep to begin with, you're not going to be able to see that change to know if the patient's not getting enough oxygen. So when you're doing a general anesthesia plan with a carotid, you're going to want to have an EEG monitoring the entire time. You're going to be wanting to be doing cerebral oxygenation and just keeping an eye on how that is occurring. Another thing you can use is stump pressure, which basically is this idea that when the surgeon clamps the carotid arteries, they're going to find the, the diseased part, clamp below, clamp above, and they're going to block blood flow from going through that carotid. So you got to be thinking, okay, We need to be getting enough blood flow from the other carotid to perfuse the entire brain tissue and make sure that we're giving that brain enough oxygen. Well, as you recall, that circle of Willis will supply to that entire tissue. And so if we monitor how much pressure is at the backside of the artery that we're occluding through this stump pressure, it'll basically tell us if there's enough pressure from the other carotid artery supplying blood pressure to that circle of Willis. So you want that to be above 40. If it's below 40, sometimes 50, that's a sign that you're not getting enough collateral blood flow through that circle of Willis, and you need to place a shunt. Same thing if the patient's awake, and all of a sudden they lose that consciousness or surge speech, that's a sign that, okay, we need to place a shunt because when we're clamping the carotid to do this procedure, we're not getting enough blood flow through the other side. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: Again, today we're just going to be using these two procedures to kind of give you some concepts for you to understand what we're looking at when we're dealing with vascular patients. And so the difficulty here is that, like Cole mentioned, you've got your two carotids. If you're clamping one, you need to still make sure that you're perfusing the brain. Again, like Cole said, if you do regional, this is sometimes better because you can accurately determine if you're getting cerebral perfusion because the patient can talk to you, communicate to you, and you can, in real time, see that they're getting cerebral perfusion. If not, these are all things that you need to start thinking about using, mentioned the EEG, the stump pressure, you can also use SSEPs. But again, if you're dealing with basically taking away half of the ability to perfuse the brain, this is something that you are going to have to keep continuous monitoring on to make sure that we're not causing some cerebral infarctions. Another thing you need to think about, like I said earlier, this is a global disease. And so if you have sclerotic vessels there in the brain, even if you're getting perfusion into the brain, there's other things you need to think about. So one of the main things that you need to consider is cerebral steel syndrome. So this would be, if you remember, your carbon dioxide is gonna be a vasodilator. If you have disease vessels that are not able to dilate like they normally would be able to, those are already areas of the brain that are at risk for hypoperfusion because of this disease. We'll say now you have an increase in carbon dioxide Now your vessels are dilating. The area that is already at risk for not getting enough blood flow is now going to be even at more risk because all the other vessels are dilating like they normally would. And so you're going to have increased blood flow. And then the area where you still already are at risk for not having blood flow, we'll just get less blood flow. We can look at just basic numbers and say, yeah, the patient's perfusing because we have a stump pressure of greater than 40 or 50. We have good EEG monitoring. You also need to think about, well, what does that look like with where's my carbon dioxide? What are these other things that could be influencing decreased perfusion to parts of the brain? These are all factors that kind of need to marry together as you're managing these patients so that you can take care of them safely.
1: Right, so let's just start from the beginning and kind of walk through this process. So, you can choose, like I said, either a regional or a general anesthetic plan. If you choose a regional, you're going to want to do a cervical plexus block. You're going to be blocking the C2 through C4 nerves. Remember, C5 to T1 is going to be your brachial plexus. So, we want to be above that. The cervical plexus is two through four. So, there's two ways to do this. If you're going to use your ultrasound, you're basically going to look at what an inter- scaling block would typically look at. And then when you're seeing your stoplight appearance, you go up a little bit higher from there and you're just going to go right underneath on the posterior side of that mastoid and inject under that region. Uh, again, just take a, a look at a picture of that to make more sense. Uh, you can also do this by feel in the same kind of area. Just feel that C6 transverse spinous process. And you're going to want to inject on the posterior side of that sternocleomastoid. That will basically numb the area there where the patient can be awake for this process. So if you're thinking about this, you're going to be working up around this carotid artery right here at the neck of this patient. And you want to keep them awake enough to be able to judge if their mentation is staying the same and if their consciousness level is staying the same and their speech is staying the same to ensure that you're getting enough blood flow and oxygen to that brain tissue. And some patients, this is not going to work for because they're going to get too anxious, too worked up, not going to sit still, get fidgety. And this is when, if you have a patient like this, you're going to want to do that general anesthetic plan. But again, this is really, really nice to do this regional because they're going to be able to tell you the most accurate way here if you're not refusing. If you're going to be doing a general, then the nice thing about this is we're going to be able to better control our blood pressure through our bottle anesthetics. But you got to keep in mind though that you can't use a lot of bottle anesthetics because we're going to be monitoring with evoked potentials and our volatile anesthetics are going to hinder the readings on those evoked potentials. So you're going to have to keep your volatile anesthetics below a MAC of one preferably even down to 0.5. And you're not going to want to use nitrous either if you're doing a general, simply because if any air bubbles get into this surgical site, as you recall, nitrous is going to just increase and swell that gas. And so if those air bubbles continue up into the cerebral area, you can get some more air um, forming in bigger quantities up in the brain. And that's obviously no bueno. So as the surgery is progressing, you want to control the patient's blood pressure to the point that we are going to clamp And cut off the blood supply through the carotid artery at this point you want to make sure that your blood pressure is greater than the baseline preferably by at least 20 percent in order to get enough collateral circulation through the other carotid artery up into that brain into the circle of willis and provide that cerebral perfusion so surgeons often will request heparin before they clamp around 50 to 100 units per kilogram when you do this, you want to get a baseline ACT, three minutes after the heparin, get another ACT, and then every 30 minutes, get an ACT. And again, if you want more information on that, go listen to our coagulation talk that we did last week. It's a very jam-packed, gripping talk that you enjoy. I, I that gripping. I enjoy.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're straight up lying to you. It was awful, but you need to know it. It's on board, so... I'm sorry if there's any people that are really into chematology. It is it, not fun. It is not. Anyway,
1: you're gonna reverse heparin with protamine. The one fun fact about the coagulation cast A we learned was that protamine is derived from salmon sperm. Yeah,
0: <laughs> You can get that question right on Jeopardy when that comes up. <laughs> Other than that, I don't know how helpful that is for your anesthetic.
1: I doubt that question will be on boards, but you'll probably remember that information, unfortunately. If it
0: is, that's one I'm going to get.
1: Yep. So with protamine, you want to make sure you give it slowly. Uh, It can cause hypotension or even some anaphylactic response. So just make sure you're giving it slowly over a couple minutes. Don't just slam it in like a lot of the meds that we give. And it's very, very, very important that we keep the patient normal, tensive, or even at the lower end at the end of the procedure. You don't want them to damage and rupture what was just done to that carotid artery. And so we can give law, calcium channel blockers, nitro, anything here just to, to lower that BP during the extubation phase and that immediate post-operative phase. It's really important that if you have a general, you don't want them to cough on extubation. Again, same thing. You don't want them to damage that surgical site that was just done. You don't want to cause a hematoma. That hematoma can then cause compression or damage to... Uh, the trachea shifting it over, it can cause hoarseness from damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, etc. There's just a lot of bad things that can happen here. Another thing you want to watch out for is a pneumothorax. We're dealing right around the, the top of the lung here, so just be mindful of that. Uh, but it's really important that we do not let them cough on extubation. If you need to give some lidocaine prior to extubation, do so. Again, we just don't want them coughing when they wake up. The following is an advertisement from the University of Kansas Health System. The University of Kansas Health System is committed to creating a culture in which the employees thrive. We are all living through challenging times and learning how to succeed in our new normal. Rapid growth has given us the opportunity to expand our team. Over the last five years, our CRNA program has grown from 35 to 100 plus and shows no signs of slowing down. We are looking for individuals who align with our style and culture. We are seeking self-starters, critical thinkers, and team players. Based in Kansas City, Kansas, with locations throughout the state, the health system has become a staple of the community. A household name in the Kansas City metro area, we value many local partnerships, including with the Kansas City Royals, the Kansas City Chiefs, T Mobile Center, and Kansas Speedway. Please contact D Pennington, spelled D P E N N I N G T O N, 2 at kumc.edu, or J Kesson, spelled J k-e-s-s-e-n at edu for more information.
0: All right, let's continue with today's discussion and move on to AAA. So this is another really common procedure that you'll see with these vascular surgeries. And this provides a lot of good points that we can talk through some good concepts here that you'll need to know and you can apply to other vascular surgeries you do. So first of all, again, let's kind of revisit, we talked about this a little bit with carotids, but what are these patients going to look like? So typically these people will be older. The really big thing that you'll see with these AAAs especially is a history of smoking. People here will have hypertension, you'll have high cholesterol. You see it more often in males than females. These are just common risk factors that you'll see with these AAA patients And also should kind of make your antenna go up and you start thinking about other things that may be associated with this procedure. So we're thinking about smoking, maybe diabetic. Again, with all these, we're thinking these global issues with the sclerotic veins and noncompliance with the changes in blood pressure and things like that. And so that'll be no different here, things we need to consider. As far as the actual procedure, you typically don't see these repaired until they're greater than five centimeters. You also would see these repaired if you had any kind of symptomatic pain, other things like that, or if there was indication that they were at risk for rupture. Once you're doing these procedures, with the carotid, you could do regional or general. With these, you're going to do general, but you can supplement that with regional. You'll see a thoracic epidural used. You usually want that to be T8 to t 12 This is really helpful because it will help blunt some of the more stimulating aspects of this procedure. And so this is one that you're really going to want to have tight control on the blood pressure. And this is just another therapy that will help you manage this patient when you're blunting a lot of those sympathetic responses. If you want more information on placing the epidural or exactly what the... If you want more information on placing an epidural or just more information about the epidural in general. We did a whole separate discussion on epidurals and spinals, so make sure you go check that out. And we're not going to take time today to go over that, but just keep that in mind. That's something that you'll often see used in conjunction with the general anesthetic. For these patients, you need to think about the main steps of the procedure. So the first thing you need to think about is there's going to be a clamping so they can actually do the procedure. Once they're done, you're going to have an unclamping And those are really the main two aspects of this procedure that are going to have some major swings with your hemodynamics. So first of all, let's think about clamping. You want to keep them pretty normal intensive all the way up until you clamp the aorta. And so again, this is going to be important that you understand what their baseline is. Many times we'll start beta blockers on these patients several days prior to the actual case. And so I think typically five to seven days before is when you start these beta blockers. You want to have them on statins as well. And this really just helps, again, like we talked about earlier, the statins are going to help control plaques, decrease the inflammation. Your beta blockers are going to help regulate your heart rate, blood pressure, also help with myocardial oxygenation. And so these are all things that you should have already geared up before we start the procedure. So you're keeping the normal tensive, And then when you're about to clamp, this is where you have normal systemic circulation. So you have the whole body circulation coming back to the right side of the heart. All of a sudden, you're going to clamp on the aorta. And so this basically just short circuits the whole system. And so you've clamped. Basically, everything below that is going to be stuck below the clamp. And then now what your LV is pumping against is a very, very condensed systemic circulation. So your SVR is going to skyrocket as this pump is going against a much smaller system. So below the clamp, you're going to have anaerobic metabolism. You're going to have nitric oxide produced. You're going to have lactic acidosis. You're going to have a bunch of inflammatory modulators produced, a massive vasodilation picture. And so this is all going on beneath the clamp. Above the clamp, you're, again, you're going to have this increase in the SVR just because you're minimizing your systemic circulation and you're going to have increased preload. You're also going to have increased production of thromboxane A2. This is going to decrease your myocardial contractility. So you can start to get the picture here. We're increasing SVR, potentially decreasing contractility. We're at risk here for having cardiovascular collapse, MI heart failure, basically a weakened pump or potentially weakened pump against an increased systemic vascular resistance could paint a bad picture here. So this is where we come in. This is something that you need to be thinking ahead, be talking with the surgeon so you're prepared. As soon as that clamp happens, you are already making steps to counteract this. Some of the things that you could do here would be to give an increased dose of narcotic or turn up your agent you could give esmolol or other beta blockers. You can sometimes you'll see arometefentanyl drip used, and so this is basically just going to decrease the sympathetic stimulation. The main thing you want to do is try to get that afterload down, and so that you're not having this really increased SVR. You're going to want to try to keep your blood pressure in a semi-normal range, you can give vasodilators, you can give nitroglycerin, you can give nitroprusside so that you're just basically keeping this blood pressure low and trying to protect the heart here. You also need to be thinking about your renal system, your respiratory system, your neurologic system. While we're clamping the aorta, these are all things that you'll want to be addressing with different medication modalities as well so that we're keeping this patient safe as we go throughout this procedure. So as Tanner just alluded
1: to, a couple of the things we want to watch out for during the clamping is going to be ischemia to the renal system and then the spinal cord. So with the renal system, this is really going to be dependent on where we're clamping. So if the aneurysm is above where the order branches off into the renal vessels or below, we'll change the risk here of decreasing blood flow to the renal system. Don't think though that just because we're clamping below the branch, off to the renal system, that there's no risk. There is still risk of having complications and kidney injuries, even though we're clamping infra renal. So just keep that in mind that just because we're below does not mean that you completely get rid of that risk. So what can we do to protect the kidneys a little bit here? Well, you can give about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of mannitol prior to the clamping, and that just helps keep that renal... Blood flow going. You can also give Lasix, and so these drugs are basically just keeping that flow through the kidney, trying to keep everything flowing through, and hopefully get through this half hour or so of clamping, and then open it back up and continue to have that regular blood flow. The other thing is going to be spinal cord ischemia. So if you recall from last time, that we talked about the spinal cord ana- anatomy, you're going to have the artery of Adamkiewicz, and what this is is it, it's a branch off of the aorta which is going to branch off usually around the T8 to T12 zone, but it can be anywhere from T5 vertebrae down to even L2. So it's very variable. But this is going to branch off and provide a collateral blood flow into the anterior spinal artery, running longitudinally up and down the anterior side of the spine. And so if this is blocked, so if we clamp above and below this section of the aorta, and we're not getting this blood flow from this artery across the aorta to that anterior spinal artery, we're going to be basically dramatically decreasing the amount of blood flow to the anterior part of the lower two thirds of the spine. Obviously, this is going to cause some major issues from a neuro standpoint. And so this is why it's very important that we're doing motor evoked potentials during this procedure? Because if we're simply doing sensory, sensory is all on the posterior side. You're not going to really pick up on this being decreased. And so if we're doing motors though, you're going to be able to see that, hey, we're not getting enough blood flow and enough oxygen to the anterior side of the spinal cord because I'm not getting motor evoked potentials. So what are some ways that we can minimize this risk? Well, spinal perfusion pressure is your MAP minus your CSF pressure. So you can either increase your MAP, or you can decrease your cerebral spinal fluid pressure to get a better spinal perfusion pressure. So, Tanner already talked about some of the ways that we manipulate blood pressure during the procedure, but let me talk about CSF. You can go ahead and place a lumbar CSF intrathecal drain that's basically going to drain out that CSF because if I'm decreasing that amount of pressure that's pushing back against those vessels, I can then have a better perfusion pressure that's the theory behind this. So if we're going to be draining the CSF, you want to keep that CSF pressure about a little less than 10 millimeters of mercury. Another thing you can do is keep the patient slightly hypothermic. This hypothermia will help with increasing the perfusion to the spinal cord. And another thing is you just want to make sure that you're keeping them at a normal blood pressure because hypotension can actually cause some increased pressure in the brain, which is then going to increase your intracranial pressure and put more pressure on your CSF. So just don't decrease your blood pressure to that point. You want to keep your blood pressure
0: normal in this situation. All right. So now let's talk about unclamping. So now that you have gone through the clamping part of the procedure, they've done the repair. Now let's think about when we unclamp. So this is where you need to be very clearly communicating with the whole surgical team because this is going to be something that's really about timing. As you go from this decreased systemic perfusion to now including the rest of the body in your perfusion, you need to have this timed correctly so that you can start doing some things that will help make that transition go smoothly. So while we're clamped, we're using some vasodilators, things like that to try to keep our blood pressure normal. Cole mentioned why that's important. First things first, you need to get those off. You need to stop using those as we're moving into this unclamping part of the procedure. Another thing you'll want to do is adequately give them fluids. We're about to include the lower part of the body back into circulation. And so you need to kind of beef up the tank here with some fluids. Another thing you need to think about is having your vasopressors ready. So while we were just using vasodilators, now you'll want to consider having your vasopressors on hand and ready for when we unclamp the aorta. When we unclamp the aorta, sometimes you may have the surgeon reclamp if the patient isn't able to tolerate this shift all at one time. This is something you can do kind of in a staged procedure. So keep that in mind. That is one thing that you can use along with these other therapies that you'll be using. Think about all the different things that are down in the lower extremities. You have a very dilated vasculature along with a bunch of this lactic acid inflammatory mediators and all these other things that are basically circulating in the lower extremity. You go off clamp. Well, now all of that is going to be circulating back into the rest of your circulation, as well as you basically have this big tank because we have a really dilated out system where now your fluid and your volume that is going through what typically was just above the clamp is now going to be going into the lower extremities. And so you can have basically a very hypotensive picture because all this fluid is going down and filling all of those vessels that are so dilated out. You'll have this large, it's called a lactic acidosis washout. So this will come back into your systemic circulation. You'll have all the issues with acidosis and with all these other mediators. And so sometimes people will give an amp of bicarb for every 30 minutes that you've been clamped. This just helps balance out a lot of the acidosis that's going back into your circulation. Again, you want to have fluids on board, start getting those fluids in. And so you can kind of bridge the gap here. Also, you might need to use your vasoactive drugs to, again, just kind of clamp down and keep your blood pressure at a healthy spot. So overall, these are things that you want to think about. Again, our cardiac evaluation, you'll want to think about your pulmonary system, your renal system. You'll want to think about your spinal cord, your cerebral perfusion. These are all things that are important to think about throughout the case. It's also important to think about these prior to the case. Make sure you have a really good pre-evaluation of cardiac status. Make sure that you have a really good understanding of your patient's pulmonary function Again, get a baseline of their renal function. This may clue you in that you need to be a little more aggressive with treating with mannitol or using those loop diuretics or whatever you choose to use to preserve your renal function. Also keep in mind that after these procedures, these patients are at risk for DVTs. So you'll want to be treating those prophylactically with stockings. You can also discuss with the team giving low molecular weight heparin, just trying to think of strategies that will attenuate the risk for DVTs here. Hopefully all this will come together as you start to think about an actual procedure when you are needing to consider all these different vascular pathologies, how you will treat your patient, the different organ systems that you're going to be really keeping an eye on, how you can monitor those, what types of monitors you'll be using, and how you read those, how you put those together to make sure that your patient stays safe through these procedures.